Our church used to be named Grace Christian Community. Uh, that was a long time ago. Some of you were here for that. Some of you weren't. Um, but we have a core value here on community, and we emphasize it a lot. We talk about it. It's on our lips. It's in our minds. We talk about fellowshipping. We even have each other over for dinner. Um, you may have been over to my house, and you probably have had burritos if you've been over to my house. Uh, Jordan actually was there last night, and this is the third time that he's had burritos at our house. It just, it's four times? Three out of four times that he's been there, it's been burritos. It's, you know, we, do, we have each other over for dinner. We uh, give and share with one another. And so in one way, it, it seems silly to even address this topic. It seems like this is home base for us. But I'm convinced that we need to, to focus on it from time to time. If you don't touch your core values often and keep your core solid, you, you can stray from them. And so, uh, but not only that, there's also some hindrances that some of us may have towards living our life in such a way that uh, we're vulnerable to others, that we can give to others, that they can speak into our lives, that we can influence others with the love of Christ. There are hindrances in, in all of us, and, in, and specifically in some of us. We've got, we've got hesitations when it comes to opening up and living lives that are visible. Uh, you know, the, the idea of walking in the light is only possible if you walk, that is, if your life is visible to other people who can see your life, how you live it, what, what your hobbies are, what your habits are, are there major struggles of sin in your life, etc. If you live in such a way that no one ever has the ability to see into or to speak into your life, then you can't be walking in the light and you're not living in community. And so because we have, we all have these various types of hindrances, it's important to deal with these hindrances, but I don't want to deal with them. I don't want you to deal with them in a moralistic way. What do I mean by that? I don't want to come here and say, the Bible says community is great. Therefore, if you don't like community or you have hesitations, you should just do whatever it takes to overcome them. That's what I would call a moralistic sermon. What I rather would, would, would do would be to say community is a beautiful expression of what God has desired for his people, as, we're, as we saw in the reading of the high priestly prayer. And if you've got issues with that, the way that you break down those barriers is not by trying harder, but it's by seeing the value and intention that God has in forming a people group and seeing that how that people group translates to the glorification of Jesus. It's not just you need to do community for the sake of community. It's that if there are hindrances in your life towards this idea of living openly or living in such a way where people can access your life, uh, that you would break down those barriers by the power and for the sake of Christ. That's it. Not just for community's sake. So, um, so that's why we, we had our reading. But I think this is important, not just because it's a core value and we need to re, re-examine our core values, but we're approaching a season in the, the calendar where this is what we focus on, right? What, what happens in the fall? There's an ingathering of food 
and that is also corollary to the ingathering of friends and family around the dinner table. The seasons are changing, and as, as summer moves into fall and fall into winter, we're going to touch on Thanksgiving, Advent, Christmas. This is a time where the community comes together to celebrate the good things that God's done in the redemptive plan of history, namely the sending of his son Jesus Christ to make atonement for all, the, all of the sins of humanity. But in those celebrations, those are celebrations that are uniquely marked, at least in, in the church, not in the world, but uniquely marked in the church as focusing around family. Thanksgiving, Advent, Christmas, and, and even you know the New Year's. The world, they, they do whatever they want on Thanksgiving. They play football, they don't give thanks to the Father, they have a parade, whatever. None of that, the, the football, the parade, none of that necessarily is recognizing the source of every good gift. That's why we sang the doxology this morning. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Thanksgiving, that season that we're approaching, we gather as a community to recognize the source of all, all value and blessing as being from the Father. And then in Christmas and in Advent, we are coming together and preparing ourselves in the great anticipation and hope of a Savior. Not necessarily the consumeristic giving of gifts. But anyway, the, the reason to focus on community before we enter those seasons is if, if there are hindrances, we can attempt to check them or, or crucify them, as it were, before we enter into those seasons of celebration. So with that in mind, uh, I want to look at four aspects of community. The first aspect is the goodness of community. What is community for? If you've been at this church any length of time, you've, you've heard some of the good things about community, but I want to demonstrate both through uh, the, the psalm that we read and through the high priestly prayer what the intention of community is. This is not a human fabrication. It's not the elders of this church placing a high value on it over and against anything else. I believe it is God's vehicle through which the community of God brings the gospel of God to the people of the world, the children of God who are still remaining in the world. We're going to look at what Jesus talks about in the high priestly prayer. We're not going to dissect the entire prayer because it's a pretty familiar passage, but we're going to look at two specific aspects of that prayer, of what it says about who the people of God or the church is supposed to be. We're going to look at this concept of anointing oil, and we're going to focus on the psalm. And then uh, finally, we're going to talk about why does community exist? You know, not only is it good, but why does it really exist? What is its purpose and what are its effects? So with that, uh, the goodness of community is really something that it's not just able to be asserted, it's able to be defended. The psalmist here asserts and then praises or exclaims the presence or the, the, the blessing that is in the midst of a people group, a group of brothers who dwell together in harmony or in unity. Psalm 133, verse 1, Larry read it just a few minutes ago, but behold how good and how pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. You can replace that word unity with harmony. The, the idea here is there is a group of people, okay? The brothers are dwelling on a particular place at a particular time, right? They, there has to be some shared space or some shared time. We live in a time-space world, and if you and I are to have any sort of relationship, that relationship, whether it takes place over the airwaves or in person or whatever, it's going to come through some shared space 
like a church gathering or a, or a dinner table or a car ride and some shared time. So you and I, we, we decide we're going to come together at this time, this place, and in that time, in that place, we will have fellowship. We'll, have, we'll live together in some way. Now, this isn't necessarily saying that the brothers have to live in the same building. That's not what this psalm is getting at. This psalm is getting at the idea that brothers are dwelling together in unity in such a way that they can actually have some substance and some relationship. It's not just a uh, kind of metaphor. It's, it's an actual relationship that takes place through words, through time, through meals. And this is what the psalmist is saying. And so what sense are they in unity? Well, the sense that they're in unity is that they have a shared value system and that they have a shared purpose. And that purpose is the living out their, of righteous lives in the place that God has given them to live. You and I, we live in, uh, most of us live in Dayton. Some of us live in the surrounding suburbs. Some of us actually live pretty far away, all the way out to near Xenia or, you know, the town of Cedarville. Some of us live, maybe your home's really in Columbus or Cincinnati or wherever, but there is a place that you live, and in the way that the Bible counts uh, the sovereignty of God, uh, that is the place that God has given you for now. And whenever you move, you know, that's maybe the place that God's given you then. Uh, people always talk to me about whether, you know, I, d I don't know God's will for my life, whether I should get married or stay single. And I, I basically tell them, well, God's will will be revealed to you on your wedding day if you're supposed to get married. If you get married, well, yeah, preferably before, amen. But, but you know, wherever you are, you have a responsibility to live your life before God in a, in a way that is consistent with his, his word. And so these brothers are dwelling together in a place that God has given them, sharing out and living out a life that is marked by fulfilling God's will. And so this is how they have unity. Otherwise, it's just kind of a, we're all fa fans of the same team, or we all speak the same language. It's more than that. It, we're not just, you know, it's not just we're all the same race, or we're all the same creed, or we're all the same uh, socioeconomic status. The shared value and the shared uh, life patterns are focused around and uh, doing the will of God, which for us, this side of the cross, this side of the, the covenant, is the sharing out of the life of Christ together. So with that, Jesus is performing this high priestly prayer, okay? He's, if you remember the story, he's been... Uh, He's been going throughout Israel. He's formed a group of people, the disciples, who have been living together with him for three years. They've walked together in unity, and yet one of them sowed discord. And the, the verse, the readings actually mentioned him as the son of destruction, or another translation as the son of perdition. The son that, that is Judas, the, the one who sowed discord in a group of brothers, was the anti-community or the anti-model of how we're to live as disciples. And yet, all the disciples fell away that night. And Jesus is praying this high priestly prayer. We've, we've focused on this many times. It's probably something you've heard before. But in what sense, we, you know, we talk about this as the high priestly prayer, and we just kind of accept that label. But in what sense was Jesus praying a prayer of the, the high priest? What was the high priest's job and function. The high priest was designated by God to be a mediator or a representative 
of the people and to go before God in his temple and to make a sacrifice of atonement, looking forward to the future atonement that would take place through Christ. And so the high priest is the one who goes before God on behalf of the people. And that's what Jesus does in this prayer. This is his prayer right before he enters into the holy place and performs that sacrifice. And in two ways, we can see that Jesus's prayer was the prayer of a high priest. Both the content and the context of Jesus's prayer is focused around his desire for this group of people to be unified, to live as a perpetual demonstration of the love of God. What Jesus does by praying for his disciples in, that, in the garden that day, before he made atonement, was he was, he was praying the will of the Father on, on, on earth that it would be done in such a way that the disciples would not fall away completely, but rather would return and they would live in love. What is his prayer? Father, I desire that those who you've given me would also be where I am and that you would demonstrate your love to them, the love that you loved me with. What he then in the next verse goes on to say that he, that, that he, Jesus, was loved by the Father since before the foundations of the world. And this echoes what Paul says, that before the foundations of the world, God chose you in his great you know, foreknowledge and predestination to come to the knowledge of Jesus. And so what, what Jesus is doing here is he is shaping in the Spirit an avenue through which this people, this new people of God, the church, would be able to flourish and and demonstrate the love of God. In the content, Jesus asks for for the Father to sanctify the disciples in his word. What does that mean? It means that they would be so washed in the word of God that their minds would be renewed, having heard God's intention that comes through the reading and preaching of his word, and that all of their life would conform to what they heard from the word of God. Jesus said, while I was here, I did keep them in your word. But now, Father, I'm praying that you would keep them in, in the word. And he goes on and asks that they would be those who would live together in unity and in harmony. And not only the content of Jesus's prayer uh, demonstrates that it was the prayer of a high priest, but also the context. He's praying this right before he goes into make atonement. This final prayer of Jesus over his flock is takes place right before he entered the true holy place. You see, all of the old covenant, as, as Paul explains in Galatians, as the writer of Hebrews explains throughout the entire book of Hebrews, all of the old covenant was merely foreshadowing of what would take place of the true reality. Jesus, in, in, this, in these chapters, both leading up to John 17 and, and taking us through the rest of the book of John, he is demonstrated as the true high priest. All the other high priests of Israel were merely precursors and pointers forward to that one true high priest who would make a lasting sacrifice of atonement, not a a sacrifice that had to be repeated yearly. And so Jesus enters into the holy place, as the book of Hebrews says, through the tent or tabernacle, that is through his flesh, and he offers up the blood of the eternal covenant in the true heavenly holy place. And so right before Jesus performs the office of the high priest, he makes the prayer of the high priest. Both of these two things, the content and the context of Jesus's prayer are necessary for us to really see the heart and the mind of God and what what God really desires 
for us to be as a community, as a people, as the flock that he mentions. Jesus says, those you've given me, I've lost none of them, right? And those who the Father has given him are both the Father's and they're his. And so this idea here, Jesus is saying, before I'm going to go make atonement for the sins of these people, the sins of not only these people, but all who will listen to them, I need to pray for them because I'm going to go away. And in this time, I want special spiritual provision to be on this people group. Jesus, th- these are the final words of a dying man, and they demonstrate the extreme importance that Jesus has placed on the disciples. They're carrying the ball, right? Jesus said that in, in, his, in his witness to Israel, he says, I am the light of the world. But then before he leaves, he tells the disciples, you are the light of the world. There's a transfer. It's like if you've ever seen the Olympics or any sort of race, there's a baton that Jesus is carrying. And he's, what he's doing in, these pra- in this prayer is he is passing the baton on to the disciples, and they're going to carry the ball from here. And so this prayer is the prayer of a high priest, both in its content and its context. But not only was Jesus the true high priest, Jesus was also the true king of God to rule over his people. How is he the true king? Well, after having made this atonement and defeating death, that is, Jesus died on the cross, accomplishing the atonement, and went down into the grave, and yet, because of his innocence, because God's favor upon Jesus, Jesus was raised from the grave. But not only did the Father raise Jesus from the grave, Jesus actually took his own life back up. I was talking to somebody last week about the symbol of Moses and how Moses had laid down his rod Uh, and it turned into a serpent, and then he picked up the rod again, and it became a staff. And that rod symbolizes authority. This is the supreme authority of Jesus. Jesus says, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down freely, and I will take it up again. That's resurrection power right there, and that's amazing, glorious God power right there. No one other than Christ can say, I'm going to lay down my life, and then I'm going to take it up. And so what Jesus does after taking up his life, the symbol of his authority is he ascends into the heaven, into the heavens and is glorified and coronated, that is crowned king over the universe. And so after Christ ascends into the heaven, there is a ceremony that takes place. Now again, the New Testament doesn't really focus on this specifically, but it's hinted to a number of times and the Psalms make it clear, but Jesus is actually glorified. Right? When John the Revelator sees Jesus, Jesus doesn't look like a man anymore. He, he looks like a man, but now he's got hair that's white as wool and feet that are burnished bronze. That is, there's a fire around the throne of God, and Jesus is the God-man sitting, reigning on this throne of power. And he's not, he's not like you and I are right now. He's been glorified. But part of the glorification was that the Father anointed Jesus with the Holy Spirit. Now, if you've never heard that idea, go check out Psalm 45, 6 and 7. It's, it's a beautiful psalm, but it says that God, your God, has anointed you. It's the same thing that happens in the gospel when Jesus says, how can David say to his Lord, sit at your right hand, right? The, the language of the psalms is Trinitarian. It says it's ascribing glory to Jesus, but it then says, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness. That is, in some way, the Father has anointed Jesus with the Holy Spirit through his glorification. 
And this, what, what happens is that the oil of gladness has been poured onto Christ and it spilled forth into the earth, which was the day of Pentecost. Now, again, this is a narrative reading. Everything that took place in the old covenant about the king has taken place. That was only a shadow of the true substance. And so in the old covenant, if you remember the stories of David or Saul, when they're anointed, the, the prophet comes and he pours the oil on the prophet and it falls upon the head of the prophet. And then it continues and it, it moves down. And so this psalm that we're reading today gives a prophetic uh, picture forward to what's going to take place through Jesus. And this is the symbol and reality. It's not just a symbol that's meaningless. It's a reality as well. This symbol reality is what took place at the day of Pentecost. A full week after Jesus had ascended, while his disciples were doing the very thing that he had prayed for, that they were living together in unity, now the Father pours forth the Holy Spirit, having poured it forth on Christ, the head of the body, it now flows down to the rest of the body. Do you see the picture? The oil comes down to the head, and it drips down the beard, onto the collar, onto the robes, and onto the floor. The unity of the brothers then throughout all of the church, both in the you know, early New Testament always to today, is nothing more than the presence of the Holy Spirit fulfilling the will of the Father, demonstrating the love of the Father, and fulfilling the prayer of God the Son. That is what this unity that this psalm is talking about. So why is community important? Because community is the tangible expression of the presence of the Holy Spirit in the midst of a people that God has redeemed and washed for himself. And so this is what that anointing oil is talking about. In Psalm 133, verse 2, the, the psalmist is ascribing value to the unity that exists among these brothers. And because the psalms are poetry, the psalmist is attempting to explain to his readers, this is what unity is like, okay? He makes, he's, he's making an analogy. In verse 2, it says the unity is like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down the collar of his robes. Now, what took place, what is, what is the psalmist talking about? He's talking to people who, who understood that when Aaron and his sons were designated for the worship of Yahweh, the service in the temple, they had to be anointed. And this anointing oil is is a consecrating oil. It's a sanctifying oil. And when the oil comes down on the head of Aaron and on his sons, it designates him for a function. So anointing oil in the Old Covenant, not to be able to go through all the pictures in the Old Covenant, but any time that anointing oil was used, it was used to designate something or someone or some place for a particular function that is to come near to Yahweh. To, to approach before God's throne or in his temple and to draw near to him. And so this, uh, you know, if a person wanted to be a priest, it, one of the sons of Levi, they absolutely had to go through the process of being anointed properly. To it, it's, it's not just protocol. It was a, a special symbol reality that God had set up to demonstrate the, the, his holiness and to provide a visual symbol a visual sermon, if you will, of the preciousness of God's presence. It's not a willy-nilly thing. You don't run in and out of God's presence. You don't just fellowship with the world and then come in and try to commune with Christ. 
it's a it's something that takes uh, an act of God, someone who designated who God has designated as a representative of Him, anointing this king or this priest. And so, if a priest wanted to approach God in His service, he had to be anointed. If a king wanted to rule over the land that God had. Uh, that God himself owns, he had to be anointed. Why? Because the king is a representative. The priest is a representative of who God is. And that king or that priest rules on the behalf of God. Same thing that took place with physical objects. If, if an object, whether it was a plate or, or an altar or a curtain, if that was to be used in the temple service of Yahweh, it had to be anointed. And so this anointing oil, we, we begin to learn from the scriptures, this anointing oil has a specific function. It has the function of making something ready to be used in, in the presence of God. That's, that's what the anointing oil is for. And so when the anointing oil is poured out on the head, it sanctifies the man, his body. When it comes down his beard and his robes and touches the, the thing that he's wearing, it sanctifies his office and his function. And then when it comes down the robes, it sanctifies and makes, makes present uh, the place to God. As in, the things which are going to come before Yahweh need to go through this process. It's not mere protocol, it's, it's a visual sermon reality. And so when it comes down the robes, it touches this sanctuary in this temple, and it makes the place consecrated specifically for the worship of Yahweh. This is a special place where God is going to come and meet with his people. And so what is the psalmist doing by making this analogy? Now, again, this is poetry, so it's, you can object if you want, but you know, it, it takes a, a good time in the Old Covenant to, to be able to put these things together. But what I think the psalmist is doing is he's making an analogy between the unity that exists with brothers and the anointing oil that was designating something for interaction with Yahweh, the psalmist is saying that unity among people, that among brothers, is like anointing oil in this, that it prepares people for encounter with God. That is why we do community. That's, it's not just something that we like. It's not just that we think Americans are too individualistic. It is in the way that God has set up his image bearers, his, his humanity, his special uh, creation. He has created it in our hearts that when we see the love of God being demonstrated in, in, a, in a people group, we are prepared for encounter with him. That's, that is how people encounter God's love. So again, you know, we talked just a little bit about why it exists, but why does it exist? I think why is maybe a bad word. Why is kind of a bad word in two senses. Uh, you can, you can be, um, you can equivocate, right? You know, if I if I ask you why, I can mean one of two things. But let's let's examine why does community exist in these two ways. What was its cause? As in, like, why did this window get broken? I'm not asking you what the purpose was. I'm asking you more like how did it? You know. What, was it a, a problem in the window? Was it a problem in the fact that someone threw an object through it? You know, why, why did something happen? Why does community exist? What is the cause for community? And what is the purpose? Okay. So the cause is that community exists because God has joined us together. We don't come together on our own and attempt to create a community 
against God's will and outside of God's plan and, and purpose. We, we come together because God has joined us together in Christ. The unity that we have because you share, uh, because you're related to Christ, because I'm related to Christ, that is the basis of our community. So why community exists? It exists because it's the natural outworking of believers who are following Jesus Christ. They come together and they meet together. As to the purpose of community, I think there's three separate purposes. They're all kind of the same, but I think there's three, at least three aspects. One of the purposes of community is the creation of a shared space and time in which disciples can serve and love those who have yet to place their hope in Christ. That's, that's what I was trying to get at, and that's what I think the psalmist's intention is by saying that the unity among brothers is like the anointing oil. It prepares people who have yet to encounter God to come into his presence. That's what happens when, uh, when, when we live lives together. I was so encouraged by what Leah shared uh, during the announcements. Her call to you was to intentionally take someone, one of these young ones, in under your wing and spend time with them in such a way that they can get to know you. Because when they get to know you, they get to see Christ through you. That's the job of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer is to more and more every day make your life into to the life of Christ or to demonstrate the love of God through it. And from that, you'll touch other lives. I think that's an amazing appeal. And I'd really encourage you to, to follow up on, on her uh, encouragement. So that's one purpose of community. Another purpose, maybe less important, maybe more important, is to provide a network of relationships in which the disciples who already hope in Christ can encourage and strengthen one another in the presence and worship of God. So both not only the outsiders, that is those who haven't heard of God, not only are they prepared to encounter God through the gospel when they live in community or experience moments of fellowship in which we are demonstrating the love of God to one another, but also, not just evangelistic purposes, but also continuing maturity purposes. That's another reason community exists. And then lastly, I believe that the people of God living on the earth today, when they live in such a way as they are a true community, their, their lives, their interactions, their relationships are filled with the power and presence of God. They serve as a prophetic witness of the life of the world to come. That is, when, what we said at the end of the, the creed today, we're not just wanting, you know, apostolic Christianity, true Christianity as revealed by the New Testament, is not focused on dying and going to heaven. Paul only one or two times says that when I die, I'm going to be present with Jesus. And the book of Revelation is clear that those martyrs who had already died before John wrote the book, he saw them right by the, the throne. So it is true that when a believer dies, they are with the Lord in heaven. But the real purpose of Jesus' resurrection, the real true call of the gospel, is that this life is not all that there is. And you and I know through our, our own empirical experiences that this world is broken. We hope for the life of the world to come at the coming of the, of the Lord through his second coming, the resurrection of the dead, the judgment of all those who are alive and dead. After that, God will reign on the earth with his people and he'll live with his people. And that is what we hope for. And so when we live in such a way as the love of Christ is shining forth, not discord, not dissension, not, 
not strife, not anger, not broken, bitter relationships, but when true love is manifested through your relationships with your brothers and sisters, through our interactions, that serves as a prophetic witness to the people outside the church. And the world will take notice. That is what Jesus prayed for in the high priestly prayer. And this is, is what we know is the goal of the restored new creation at the end of the age. Nothing more than the lamb coming and being the light of the city, the true community which is to come. So let's pray. Father, we thank you absolutely for what you're doing in our hearts. We pray that all of the, the hindrances that we have to, to living our lives in an open way, to, to giving, to serving, to loving, to, to allowing people to speak into our life without reacting in bitterness and in, in harshness. We, we ask you that these aspects of community would be manifest here in a tangible way. Lord, we ask that when unbelievers are in our midst, that, that our relationships, our community, our life together would be like that anointing oil that, that the psalmist wrote about, the anointing oil which sanctifies a people group and a place for encounter and worship of you. We ask you, Holy Spirit, that you would be present in, in us and through us to unbelievers, and that in our interactions together, we would strengthen each other's faith. Lord, we do ask that you would cause us to live sacrificially, to give, to serve, to love, not in a moralistic way, not in a way that we would just attempt to do community for community's sake, but rather that we would do it by serving you, through serving you, intending to demonstrate your love. God, I pray that you would cause us to live sacrificial lives, that we would live, as Paul says, in such a way that our lives are being poured out like a drink offering. God, I pray that you would heal in us any wounds of failed families or or forgetful friends or broken relationships, that you would heal every calloused heart that is hesitant to to reach out and, and love his or her brother or sister. God, I, I pray that through this taking uh, of, the, of the elements here in a minute, that you would communicate to us grace and truth, that we would see Jesus sacrificing himself for the good of the people, and that we would imitate his faith. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.